So I'd like to begin just by saying welcome. It's good to have you here. Um, surprisingly, there's quite a number of people I recognize, which as I get older, I recognize less and less, so that's quite something. So some of us know each other, and some of you, it's your first time to Gaia House and our first time of meeting you, so especially a warm welcome if you haven't been here before. I think to start with some introductions, clearly this would be John. Um, <laughs> this is Jenny, uh, I'm Christina, and here is Claire, who you will meet over the week because she will be leading the mindful movement sessions. So to start it off with, I, I just really want to acknowledge that for those of you who haven't been on retreat before or haven't been to Gaia House before, I can well understand that this probably might look a little bit strange, like walking into a rather unfamiliar environment, you know, the Buddha statues, the silence, the many hours of sitting and walking we will do together. You may already have had a glimpse at the daily, of the daily schedule, and there's not a whole lot going on. So what I would really encourage you to do in the beginning, and, and this is true whether it's your first retreat or whether you have done many retreats, I think our first task for all of us is really simply to arrive, to calm down, to land in a sense, um, to feel your way into being in this space, these days of silence and practice. Now, there's really two aspects to this retreat. So, one aspect of this retreat, which we have led for really quite a few years now, well, first of all, acknowledging that everyone here is in some way engaged with teaching mindfulness-based applications or learning to teach mindfulness-based applications. And the reason why we began these retreats was out of a sense of valuing the depth of understanding that underpins mindfulness-based teaching. So what we endeavor to do in this retreat is to give you a taste of the very rich framework of practice and teaching and Buddhist psychology from which mindfulness-based applications are born. So part of this retreat is to offer that framework, to offer that sense of the roadmap in a way of this teaching, this path, uh, how it develops, what its background is. So part of the retreat is, is having that conceptual understanding, which is very important. But the other part of this retreat, which is equally <coughs> important, is an acknowledgement that I think for any of us to be really skilled, mindfulness-based, mindfulness teachers, has a great deal to do with our own experiential understanding and embodiment of mindfulness in our own lives and in our own practice. And there is really no better place, and in a way, no better way to deepen in that experiential understanding than to be here, to undertake this path, to undertake this practice with the, all the sincerity that you bring. We mention very specifically when we, when we advertise, not advertise, but when this retreat goes in the Guy House brochure, 
We mentioned very specifically that this retreat is not a training in clinical skills, which is very true. But it's probably also true that, you know, we, when we talk about clinical skills, we're talking about our capacity to convey what mindfulness is. And that really rests upon our own understanding experientially. So over these days here, you will hear us making really considerable references to Buddhist teaching, Buddhist psychology, um, because there is a very refined framework that has existed for 2,600 years about the practice and the development of mindfulness. But it's very important really to mention at the outset that this is not the language that you will be taking with you into your work with clients or clinical situations. But that language actually is hard to, to duplicate, so we will not hesitate to do that. So I want to give you a little bit of a sort of framework for this teaching. The Buddha was very clear in saying so simply that I teach just one thing, that there is suffering and there is an end to suffering. He spoke about the healing of inner torment and a path that could be practiced by anyone. No need to be a Buddhist academic, no need to be a monastic, that all that was needed to undertake this path and this practice was to have a mind, a body, and a genuine willingness to commit to a journey of awakening. A journey of understanding, of compassion, of kindness and empathy. In many ways, this the simplicity of that statement that there is suffering and the end of suffering and there is a path. This is the very place where this very ancient teaching really meets the contemporary world of mindfulness applications. Because both that is what we are concerned with. I want to give you just a little bit of a background to this teaching as we know it now, the kind of time and the ethos in which this young man, Siddhartha, undertook this path. 2,600 years ago, the kind of spiritual ethos in India, the time that Siddhartha lived, which admittedly was a very difficult time to live in, in terms of deprivation, in terms of caste structures, in terms of poverty. Spirituality was often seen to be a way to get out of all of that difficulty. So spiritual paths at that time, quite understandably, often emphasized certain values such as transcendence getting out of, overcoming, um, disconnecting or disengaging in a way from a life that was difficult to bear and to be in. And in that kind of ethos of that time, you know, much of what comprises us as human beings, our bodies, our emotions, our, our minds, our lives, our relationships was in many ways regarded to be something of an obstacle in the spiritual journey, something of a problem, something to get over. When we hear that story, we think, oh, well, that, you know, it's 2,600 years ago, you know, the times are different now. Um, but we actually kind of get a sense of how very timeless not only are the human dilemmas we all face, but how very timeless is our inclination to disengage and to get away from the difficult. It is almost as if 
aversion has a long history as the human psyche. When we take away the sort of kind of like the, the furniture of people's lives in that time, what we do see is people coming to the Buddha with the very, very similar dilemmas and questions that people in our life, in our time face, that we may face. That what do we do with being born and living in a world that we often don't feel to be able to control? What do we do with the age, you know, the realities of aging and sickness and death and a body that somehow is not always the body we want or even the life that is not always the life that we want? What do we do with, with the kind of age-old disappointments of often not getting what we want in life, often getting what we don't want? Um, the kind of frustrations that we can experience on a daily basis. What do we do with change? The changes that happen in ways that we don't always want or find hard to accept. Where the Buddha was a radical in his time was that rather than just approaching these age-old dilemmas and questions as some things to be dismissed or transcended or overcome. The Buddha was a radical in his time and in a way kind of holding up his hand and saying, let's just look at what's going on here. You know, rather than resisting this life, rather than trying to overcome it, perhaps we can understand it. Perhaps we can learn to meet this life with all its joys and its difficulties, with kindness, with mindfulness, with understanding, and that perhaps freedom really lies within our own hearts and minds rather than changing the furniture of our lives. I think you get a sense of how this kind of teaching has translated over the years and now in our time the very essence of mindfulness-based applications lies very much in that kind of inner shift. That perhaps we can really understand what is going on here. Perhaps we can make peace with what is rather than fearing it. Perhaps we can bring kindness to what is rather than rejection. Perhaps we can bring compassion to this life rather than anxiety Perhaps be, not being in control doesn't necessarily mean we are out of control. When, when the young man Siddhartha looked at the reality of his life with its disappointments and its joys, he saw in his own mind, I think, responses to that reality, which I think we can probably all relate to. He said, what are the classic pathways of responding to the difficult? One is um, despair. You know, life is unfair. Nothing I can do about it. Um, you know, just kind of sink into helplessness and powerlessness. He said, another way of responding to life's realities is with anger, with aversion. This shouldn't be happening. It must be somebody's fault. It's either your fault or it's my fault. He said, another way of responding to the difficult is agitation. You know, how do I fix this? You know, how do I find the answer? How do I make this change? How do I try to shape this into something I want? said, another response is guilt. You know, I'm unworthy. I must have done something to deserve this life. And what Siddhartha saw is that these responses, rather than ending suffering, rather than bringing peace, that they actually compounded suffering. So what he discovered in his own mind, in his own life, that rather than following these pathways, that there was another pathway that could be followed that didn't compound suffering. And that was a pathway of investigation, of understanding, of mindfulness. 
understanding the origin of sources of struggle and anguish, understanding the ways to its end, and practicing those ways on a moment-to-moment level. This is actually what we'll be doing here during this retreat. It's what we'll be engaged with, our own journeys, our own journeys of understanding this mind-body-heart process, understanding and exploring our own capacities for kindness, for compassion, for empathy, for inner listening. What we'll be doing here over these days is developing our own capacity to be really present and mindful in the midst of all things. So, John. Jenny. Jenny. Could you just push the clock back So, yes, I'd just like to uh, reiterate the welcome and... uh, yeah, just acknowledge how privileged I always feel to be up here uh, teaching this illustrious company. I was just reflecting earlier, one of the founders of Gaia House and one of the founders of MBCT. I don't think I've ever founded anything, so it's very lovely to teach with Christina and John. So I want to say a little bit about... Um, a couple of related aspects of the context of our practice here together. Uh, the, the ethical guidelines or the precepts, um, ethical practice generally, and, and the atmosphere of silence that we maintain at, at Gaia House, which may be very unfamiliar to, to some people. And in the Buddhist tradition, uh, meditation practice, mindfulness practice, is is seen in the context of a threefold path um, of ethical um, conduct or ethical behavior as the foundation, meditation practice in the middle, as it were, and then liberating insight as the culmination. So that doesn't require any allegiance to the tradition of Buddhism, the religion we call Buddhism, or whatever we might call it, um, but really just to acknowledge that in the practice of meditation, our behavior, our lifestyle, our our general values really um, have a powerful impact on our mental states and and therefore on our practice. And this is, I think, very implicit in the attitudinal foundations of MBSR and BCT. Um, and it's just made a, in a way more explicit in the Buddhist tradition. So um, the, the word that is, is used in, in, the, in the Pali language, the word is sila, that is used for this ethical basis, um, it literally just means conduct or behavior. So it's the foundation of the path, partly just generally in, in the general sense of relating to the the possibility that we can intentionally transform our lives, our minds, our hearts, our behaviour, and that that we can change in in incredibly um, diverse ways and to to a great degree. So just that possibility implies that we can begin by some attention to our ethical sensitivity, our behaviour. And if we behave in that way, if we consider our values, our ethics, our behavior, we can be at least uh, confident that we're not causing suffering to those around us, or at least as little as possible. And that can lead to, in itself, a sense of peace in our hearts. It's, It's very difficult to sit down and practice mindfulness, practice meditation, if there's something really weighing heavily on our conscience. So it just gives us a foundation of of peace of mind, partly. And traditionally, um, this ethical foundation is expressed in terms of the five precepts or the five ethical guidelines, which I think uh, one of the coordinators uh, ran through briefly with you earlier. So just to remind you, um, the first precept is not harming or killing any, any living being. Second is not taking anything that is not freely given to you. Uh, So slightly more subtle than just not stealing. 
just not taking something that is not being clearly offered. It might be someone's time, it might be something tangible. But if there's any doubt whether it's being given freely, we, we, we leave it. The third is not exploiting others through sexuality. Um, and on the retreat, we actually um, request or we, we practice a celibacy. We just really leave that whole area of energy, which is, can be very wholesome but can also be very powerful, and, and just leave that aside uh, as best we can. Um, the fourth um, precept is not to engage in harmful speech, usually uh, translated as lying or also harsh or, or slanderous speech. And on the retreat we practice silence, so in a way that, that's easier. Uh, and in a way it's, it's not, because speech is also often internal. So um, I'll say more about silence in a minute. And the fifth precept is not to cloud the mind with intoxicants. Uh, so basically, no alcohol, no recreational drugs. Um, if you must smoke, we invite you to go out of the grounds, but it can be quite an interesting practice to see how it is to, to not do so or to smoke less. Obviously, if you're on prescribed medication, this precept does not apply to that. Uh, this is only things that really cloud our mind in a way that um, clearly interferes with mindfulness practice, with awareness. And these precepts, they're, they're very non-specific in a way. They're, they're, they're clear, but there's no specific prescription as to how this might manifest in, in a particular lifestyle. We each have to work out what, what they mean for us. They're not commandments given from on high. In a sense, they're just how we would naturally behave when we're at our best. Um, they're said to be how a Buddha would naturally behave. And they're a very basic foundation, um, really, of ethics. I mean, they're pretty universal, really, not killing, not lying, not stealing. Um, probably on a retreat, we weren't likely to break them in enormously big ways. But I think it's just worth maybe looking at them at more subtle levels as well. But sila, this word, is also sometimes translated as restraint um, in the sense of really just having respect for ourselves and for others and not just giving free rein to what we might automatically want, think or feel or say in a reactive way. It's an aspect of mindfulness, awareness of, of, of our behaviour. Um, and if it sounds a little restrictive, I think it's... It's something actually in daily life we practice restraint in all kinds of ways. We don't cross the road without looking. We go to work on Monday morning even though we don't feel like it. Um, you know, we, we eat things that are good for us and not just cakes. There's all sorts of ways that we actually practice a certain level of restraint. And so practicing ethics, practicing sila is just an invitation to bring a more a more conscious awareness to our behaviour, uh, being clear about whether it's wholesome, whether it's supporting our practice, whether it's in line with the precepts, whether it's supporting those around us. Um, and this really supports us living together as a community for these few days. It, it helps everything run more smoothly. So there are one or two specific things that we, if you like, we practice restraint with regard to. We don't have radio or TV, as you might have noticed. Um, we really strongly invite you to um, practice restraint with regard to mobile phones. In other words, turn them off for the duration of the retreat. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that when I come on to silence. And just be very mindful of, of um, reading. You know, really, the more you can... Um, focus on the practice, that the less distraction there is. So really inviting you, if you've you know, brought that big book that you've been meaning to read for ages, just to please leave it in, in your bag. Uh, and to write minimally. Um, you know, maybe you'll want to write some notes and talks or make a few notes of what's happening. But I know myself, I've often, on retreats years ago, would write copious journals about the minutiae of my mental states, which... 
actually were just a distraction. And a couple of days later, I thought, this is history. Why did I write this down? So, so just to be aware of that temptation, maybe, if you have that temptation. And also there's an element, perhaps, of restraint just in keeping to the retreat conditions and, and the schedule uh, as best you can, with, with obviously, self-compassion and mindfulness. But um, I've heard Christina in the past talk about how we can sometimes negotiate with the schedule, you know, well, maybe I'll do the early morning sitting four days out of six or something. Now, there may be reasons that, that we need to miss a sitting sometimes, but can be just quite a useful practice, just to show up and, and see what happens. And a lot of the, if, if we each practice the, the precepts and, and bear our behaviour in mind, really, are ethically sensitive, it shows a great deal of consideration to each other. It supports everybody on the retreat. And this particularly is important for the practice of silence. So... Um, the request for the duration of the retreat really is that we talk only as necessary. So if you may have to ask a question to a coordinator during a work period, obviously we'll talk during group interviews. Um, there may be invitations to ask questions in the hall. But other than that, to maintain silence. And if this isn't familiar, it can be very challenging. So I'd just like to invite you to see it not as a rule or a requirement or a restriction, but really as an opportunity, even as a gift. It's very rare in our culture to have an opportunity to be in a silent environment. So it's partly to support our meditation practice, practice in general, both our own and each other's. Um, it's, It's a chance to... Reduce distractions, really have a deeper experience of our, our mental states, our emotional states, our habits, our, our tendencies, all the things that we can learn through practice. It's a different way to be with others. And as I said, if we all respect it, it's very mutually supportive. It's a chance to drop our concerns about what impression we're making. You know, we don't have to worry about witty repartee, which can be a, a great relief. It's also a challenge not to maybe escape into conversation when things get tough. And I know a lot of you know each other here, so it can be even more tempting to just go for a walk with your friend and um, have a little bit of of a distraction. So I really invite you to to resist that that temptation, really. And, And be with your friends and acquaintances and colleagues in a different way. There is a way to be in a community in silence that can be very, very supportive. And it supports us in practicing wise or appropriate speech when we go off the retreat. We'll maybe say more about that at the end. Periods of silence can make us more aware of what we say and how we say it. So silence isn't just the absence of of speech. Um, you know, it's also the absence of texting and uh, really just a, a chance to have a break from, from that whole um, emphasis in our culture of being constantly available, constantly contactable. So if there are any exceptional circumstances, if you have a very sick family member that you need to be in touch with, um, obviously, you know, be, be sensible about that and perhaps let us know if, if there's some way that you need to be in contact with people if this isn't, hasn't been clear, you might need to call your, your partner or family this evening just to explain that you're actually incommunicado for, for the week um, and give them the Guy House number in case they need to contact you in an emergency. Um, and also what can happen when we're in silence is that we can get involved in lots of non-verbal communication. I'm not saying that we avoid that completely and become very, you know, eyes down, don't look at anyone, but, but just be aware of any tendency to, to perhaps be wanting to connect with someone who perhaps isn't actually in that, in that space. One teacher I know calls it keeping custody of the eyes, so just being aware of when we're making eye contact and why, but without getting kind of rigid about it I think the coordinators will have said this but just 
um, to write notes only to the teachers and, and not to each other. So if you have any concern about somebody, uh, just draw your, the attention of that to either one of the coordinators or, or one of us. Um, and except in emergency, obviously, um, communicate to the coordinators only by writing notes on, on the notice board. <coughs> And I think that the practice of silence, just want to finish really by saying that this, this, this can allow our practice to take us to a very deep level of silence in the mind, which isn't just the absence of speech. It can be a whole kind of base of stillness underneath our experience, even in the middle of action and, and words. Um, so, um, yeah, just, just to invite really seeing that the opportunity to be in silence as, as a, a chance to experience something a little bit different <coughs> rather than as, as a restriction. And I just wanted to finish with a couple of lines from a, a poem by Hafiz, who said, A day of silence can be a pilgrimage in itself. A day of silence can help you listen to the soul play its marvellous lute and drum. So... That may or may not be your experience, but uh, that's all I want to say. Thanks very much, Jenny. And uh, let me add my own very warm welcome to you all. It, it's lovely to have you here, so many of you, you know, interested in understanding more about the background to what you're doing and in deepening your own personal practice. And what I'd like to do is say something about some general qualities of heart and mind that it's enormously helpful if we can cultivate in each and every moment of the retreat as best we can. Because what we're doing here together is essentially creating a situation by arranging conditions, particular set of conditions that will enable us to deepen our practice, deepen our understanding in ways that will help us reduce our own suffering and those of the people we serve. And of course, that's exactly the strategy that we have in mindfulness-based applications. We create a set of conditions to achieve the aims we're intending. Now, the most obvious set of conditions, the features of both are the specifics, the meditation practices, the teachings, the exercises, um, the instructions. Um, but what I really want to focus on are what you like is more the background, the sort of whole atmosphere in which those specifics are held and informed and infused. And the qualities I want to focus on are very much here the same as those that are essential to what you're doing in your work. And as well as the tradition emphasizing the crucial importance of these more general qualities, we're now getting more and more evidence that these are vital to the effectiveness of mindfulness-based applications. Many of you will know, for example, the evidence that the, from the Exeter work which shows that the compassion, the change, the increase in self-compassion that patients experience over the course of MBCT is one of the key mediators of change. And crucially, that comes about not because they've been taught particular compassion practices, but because it's in the atmosphere. The instructors in their own being have embodied compassion, which has influenced everything that's been done, and that's what the participants have picked up. So this is really an invitation to use this retreat to cultivate some of these qualities, which I'll go into briefly now, within yourself, both for your own welfare, 
but crucially also because these will affect very powerfully the way you deliver the specifics of the programs, which in many ways are the easier bits. The more subtle background features are the ones that really need the attention. The first one I want to focus on is indeed compassion, kindness. Um, this is seen as the foundation of all the practices that have the many practices that exist within the Buddhist tradition. Um, this general sense of goodwill, of kindliness, friendliness, um, closely related to compassion, which is the particular aspect of this in the context of suffering and pain, where there is a deep concern and care and empathy for the suffering of another and for ourselves. And the reason kindness is given such crucial importance is because so much suffering comes about from a basic endemic unkindness and harshness. And kindness to ourselves, to, ex to others, to experience. If we look at the way we treat ourselves, quite often you know, there is a harshness about our judgments the way we push ourselves and drive ourselves in a way that if we saw another person treating another one like that, we would be quite appalled. But somehow inside ourselves, this we can become quite habituated to. And of course our patients experience exactly the same. Self-criticism, self-judgment, these are very powerful sources of stress and maintainers of depression um, we are unkind to others in our thoughts again we judge them we get irritated um, we get tetchy and often this will be expressed verbally or in our behaviour and that will just feed back and create further problems for us um, we're unkind often there is a basic unkindness to our experience, which may seem a sort of odd idea of how can we be unkind to our experience, but very often, you know, we wish our experience out of existence. We just don't want to be having the experience we're having right now. And really that's the ultimate in lack of goodwill. You know, we just don't want you here at all. And most often there is some sense that this shouldn't be like this. Um, you know, we want to be having experiences that we're not having. We don't want to be having the experiences we are having. There's this sense of rejection and resistance to our very own experience, which is fundamentally unkind. And many of the patterns that keep the emotional disorders with which we deal, as we'll see, going is this root pattern of aversion reacting to unpleasant experiences with the wish to get rid of them, avoid them, destroy them. And it's that fundamental aversion that is at the root of suffering and for which kindness is the most powerful solvent. Kindness is not just a way of being nice, it's actually immensely powerful as a way of undercutting the very roots of the suffering which both we and the patients we seek to help um, experience. So the invitation is, as much as you can in every waking moment, to bring kindness to yourselves, a gentleness, particularly when things aren't going well, when your mind's all over the place, rather than turning on yourself, just softening and being kind and understanding and gentle. Um, practice being gentle in your movements. A kindness to others. You may not have much opportunity to express it verbally here, but you can wish people well as you pass them. May you be well. May you be happy. 
There may be opportunities to be generous in the work period, helping people with their jobs. What, <coughs> what Jenny has been describing in relation to the precepts and silence, these are in many ways gifts to ourselves and others. <gasps> and they're ways for us to express our kindness by helping create together this kindly container of silence and good behaviour in which we can feel confident and relaxed. And kindness to our experience. Allowing it to be just as it is. Not struggling with it, not demanding that it's different from how we actually find it. Accepting that in this moment, this is what the universe has delivered to me. How can I welcome it, receive it, take what it has to offer? Because often it's the most difficult experiences that provide us with the most powerful learning. So, a central emphasis on kindness. And kindness to experience leads very naturally into another general quality, that of allowing, letting go, letting be, <coughs> not struggling with our experience to insist that it be different. Um, it's really much what I've said about our kindness to experience. But it also means cultivating patience. You know, we're a big retreat, there's going to be long queues for the meal times, for shower rooms, whatever. You know, again, rather than getting into a struggle with what is, seeing if it's possible just to let it be there, allow it. It's not passive, it's not resignation. It's the crucial first step in allowing things to unfold in a different way rather than get stuck in our pattern that comes from our rejection and need for things to be different. The last quality I want to focus on is again related to this letting be, allowing, and that's simplicity. You've probably heard many times that you know mindfulness is basically very simple. All we have to do is take care of this moment and that will take care of the next moment and that will take care of the next moment and that's all there is. And sounds in principle very easy. But of course in our everyday lives you know, the busyness we have, our projects, our responsibilities, our planning, our to-do list, our decision making, all these interfere with that basic simplicity. Here you have this precious, wonderful opportunity, a rare opportunity to let go of all that stuff for a week. You've got no responsibilities, there's no decisions to be made, um, no plans to be made. I um, heard this lovely conversation this afternoon. Mark, the coordinator, was asked by uh, one of you, you know, I don't have a watch, what will I do? He said, surrender to the bells. <laughs> and really, that is the invitation. You know, we will be giving you instructions as to what to do and when to do it. And it's very simple, you know. Sit, walk, get up, eat, and so on. And there's no need to plan. You don't need to make complicated decisions or projects. Just surrender to the schedule. Go with it. And just see what that simplicity can do for you. Thoreau, one of John Kabat-Zinn's beloved authors, has this lovely quotation. Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify, simplify. And again he writes, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So again, if we can simplify within this retreat, we have that possibility of coming close to life, coming close to our experience, and really connecting. Um, so I would really encourage you, right now, to tie up any loose ends that you may have brought, to let go of any grand projects or schemes or aims or problems you wanted to work on while you were here, just consciously 
release them. Breathe out. Relax. Arrive, as Christine has said. And as much as possible, just soften yourself into the retreat. Um, bring this quality of gentleness, softness and kindness as much as you can to each moment of the retreat, beginning now. There's no need to defer it because you know, this is the ideal time to begin this process in as gentle and as kind a way as you can. So I wish you a fruitful and kindly retreat. So we will um, end the evening with a short sitting, but before we go into that, um, please feel free to take a moment. If you, if it's helpful, stand up and stretch. Just loosen your body up a little. So just finding a posture for yourself in which you can be as comfortable and as still as you're able to be. And taking these moments just to be aware of your body as it is in this moment how your posture is, feeling your feet touching the mat, the ground, feeling the contact with the chair, the cushion, the bench. Just mindful of whatever sensations are present in all those places of contact, of connection, whether it's warmth or pressure or hardness. In the sensation of your hands touching one another, resting on your legs. Feeling the touch of of the air on your face, the touch of your clothing on your skin. Mindful of the aliveness of your body, 
the spectrum of sensations that are present just now. And making room for that spectrum of sensation, whether pleasant or unpleasant. Feeling what it means to be present in your body. Sensing what it is to be upright in your posture. The length of your spine. Sense of your head, your neck being upright, alert. Embodying that quality, those qualities of alertness, presence, wakefulness within your posture. Also sensing if there's any areas of holding, of tension in your shoulders, in your face, in your hands. It's a sense of softening within that alertness. Relaxing within that uprightness. Expanding the field of your attention, aware of just listening, the quietude, the sounds around you. Bringing in the intention to gather, to collect your attentiveness, to be just a little more focused and mindful of your body breathing, without forcing or controlling in any way, 
Just tracing the movement of just one breath at a time, from its beginning to its ending. Feeling your body expanding with the in-breath, relaxing with the out-breath. The coolness of the air entering your nostrils. The warmth of that same air leaving at the end of the breath. Cultivating a moment-to-moment attentiveness. So I would, again, just want to echo John's suggestion to tie up any loose ends that have yet to be tied up as much as possible this evening so that tomorrow when we begin, we really begin with, uh, you know, our ability to be fully committed to what is really present in front of us. I know that some of you have traveled quite a bit today or come from work and you're probably weary, but even so, you probably haven't been encouraged to go to bed at 9 o'clock since you were about 10 years old. Um, But I can also almost assure you that tomorrow night when 9 o'clock rolls around, you'll be thinking, where is my bed? Where is my bed? But... um, I mean, I'm very well aware that some people have the gift of being great sleepers, and 
For others, it's a little more challenging, especially in new places and shared rooms. So I just wish you the best. (laughs) 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 Nothing else I can do about it. (laughs) There are no options, but I do hope that you rest as well as you can. And tomorrow the wake-up bell is at 6.30, and if the bell ringer at that time, um, please, that's not the place to practice restraint. Um, that's actually the place to practice plenty of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Um, come to sit at 7 o'clock. So, rest well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.